Well, today we wrap up Luke chapter 13, so if you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, find your way to Luke chapter 13, and I'm going to share with you a message that I've titled, The Safety of the Savior's Wings. The Safety of the Savior's Wings. We're going to be beginning in verse 31 of Luke 13 here in a few moments, but just to kind of draw our attention to the topic for the day, I want to share with you a story I heard of a of a, a mom and her son. It was a summer evening, and there was a very severe, violent thunderstorm that was passing through this small country town as mom was tucking in her seven-year-old son to bed. Now, the mother assured her son that he would be okay, but as she was just about to turn off the light, and a lot of you moms will know this sort of experience, he said to his mother with a fearful voice, Mommy, will you stay with me tonight? Well, his mother, of course, smiled and and gave her young son a reassuring hug as she ultimately put a little measure of comfort into his life and hugged him saying, I can't, baby. I have to go stay with Daddy. Well, the little boy thought for a moment about the sleeping arrangements before he finally had something to say about his daddy. With words of ridicule, he blurted out, That big sissy! (laughs) In most homes with small children, moms are the go-to sources of love that is manifested in compassion and comfort and care for the children. I know when our kids have gotten up in the middle of the night when they've heard an unexpected noise or when they've had a bad dream, they may come to our bedroom, but they don't come over to my side of the bed. Or or maybe they do, and I just don't wake up. (laughs) Whatever the case may be, Amy is the go-to nurturer in our our home. I I feel pretty sure if the kids had come to me and woken me up in the middle of the night, the distinct command they would have gotten would be, go back to bed and leave me alone. Because a lot of times we dads tend to not be nurturers, especially in the middle of the night. And so Amy's the go-to nurturer in our home. She's the mom, and she owns her biblical calling to love our children with kindness beautifully. She thrives in that role. Our kids know that they can depend on her for compassion and comfort and care. And God has certainly enabled her to make up for some of my own personal shortfalls in this area. Likewise, in the home where I grew up, My mother was typically the one who scurried around ensuring the safety of her children. If my brother and I were to walk down to the pond in front of the home where we grew up, for example, my mom would poke her head out of the door and yell, y'all be careful, don't fall into that pond. If we were shooting BB guns, she was the one who would say, be careful with those things and don't point them at your brother. Thoughts about keeping the kids safe, even now, continue to consume my own mother's thoughts. I recall that when I was a kid, she would often fall asleep on the sofa while I was playing in the living room floor, for example. And then 
she would wake up in this panic as though she'd had some sort of dream that I was kidnapped or forever lost. And as she woke up in this panic, she said, where's Jeremy, where's Jeremy, where's Jeremy? These days, my dad tells me that she often wakes up in the dead of the night screaming not for me, but where's Caleb? (laughs) Even when she's not watching our four-year-old son. Most mothers invest significant love and go to great lengths to ensure the nurture and the safety of their young ones. And for many a mother, providing comfort and care and compassion are the staples of the unique role that God has called her to carry out. But we should know that these characteristics of good mothers find their source in the very heart of God. God loves his children with a compassionate, comforting, and caring sort of love. He has chosen a nation, the Jews, to be his special people, his kingdom of priests. And he has chosen a people, the church, the redeemed, both near and far, to be his adopted children and the joint heirs of all things. And God loves his children with compassion, and comfort, and care. In Isaiah 66, for example, God speaks of his own love for the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel that she represents with these words. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to Jerusalem like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you will be nursed You will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted in Jerusalem. You hear those kind words of affection that are so common among mothers. But God says, this is the way I'm going to care for my children. So while there are some distinguishing actions and compassions of love that are common among mothers, we should know that the love that drives those actions and those compassions reaches all the way into the heart of God. The God who designed motherhood. The God who has assigned to mothers their high calling here on earth. We're going to see that exemplified here in today's passage. Jesus breaks forth with a steadfast and a sure love for the children of the nation of Israel. It's a children which he has longed for millennia to gather together just as a hen gathers her young chicks under her wings. That love extends to those outside of the nation of Israel as he has also opened the narrow door to eternal life for whosoever would seek the shelter of a merciful and a gracious Savior as we looked at last Sunday. That's why I've titled today's message, The Safety of the Savior's Wings. Because that's what Jesus, with a love akin to a mother hen, offers to all of us now, here, now. And maybe you're here today, and maybe you feel unloved. Maybe your lot in life has not been all that you had hoped that it would be. Well, as we peel back the layers of this passage, I hope you'll come to understand that the God of heaven who entered earth 
in the person of Jesus Christ has a love for you that is unmatched by any other. More than a mother loves her children, God loves you. Even when it's not easy to do so, God loves you. Even when it costs him everything, God loves you. Like a mother hen protecting her chicks, God loves you. Even when you've blown it and you find yourself far from him with a broken heart, God loves you. And in his great love, Jesus offers you the safety of a Savior's wings. And so look with me now, Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 31. And you'll hopefully catch a glimpse of the depth of love which the God of heaven has for you in Christ. Luke 13, if you're able to stand, I'd ask that you would stand and we might honor together the reading of God's word as we begin in verse 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, that is saying to Jesus, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as he has been since back around Luke chapter 9, Verse 51, when we read that he ultimately set his face toward Jerusalem, that holy city of God. Now, much of his ministry to this point has been spent in the northern area of Israel, known as Galilee. But we read last week that Jesus is ultimately winding on this journey down to that great holy city of Jerusalem, which is down toward the south. And as he passes He is teaching in one city and village to another as he goes through. And while our text today doesn't mention exactly where Jesus is as he's on this winding journey down toward that holy city, we can expect that he was still either on the outskirts of that northern area of Galilee or he was over to the east of the Jordan in an area known as Perea. Why would I say that? Well, both of those areas were ruled by the only remaining individual known as Herod at this time. And the Pharisees come to Jesus. They tell Jesus, ultimately, you need to get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. That's what they say in verse 31. Go away. Leave here for Herod wants to kill you. 
Now, if Herod wanted to kill Jesus, and the Pharisees' solution for that was for Jesus to leave the area, then it's clear that Jesus was in one of the regions that was ultimately ruled by the remaining Herod, who was Herod Antipas, also known as Herod the Tetrarch. And so those areas which Herod the Tetrarch ruled at this time were Galilee to the north and Perea to the east on the eastern border of Israel. And so that's the message of the Pharisees. They're trying to drive Jesus out of this place and yet Jesus remains undeterred from his mission. He has set his face toward the holy city that ultimately kills the prophets. He has set his face to that place where his deep and abiding love for all of mankind will soon be on display. As he soon will be executed as the divine substitute for every sinner who has come to faith in order that they might receive God's gift of grace. I just want to ask you, do you know that God in Christ loves you it's written all over his plan for his only son to save you jesus came as god in the flesh to bear the penalty of our sins for all of mankind he came to be the perfect righteous substitute who would display god's boundless love by dying in our place and conquering death on our behalf And friends, God has a great love for you in Christ Jesus. Like a mother hen who longs to welcome you into the safety of her wings, he loves even you, even me. In fact, I want to show you from this passage five characteristics of the love that Jesus offers you in the safety of his wings. Here's the first of those characteristics. The love that Jesus has for you is a steadfast love. Now when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you in verse 31, we can be sure that they're not only concerned about looking out for Jesus' interests. It would not be characteristic of the Pharisees to be wanting to make sure that Jesus is taken good care of. They're not concerned about his good health. In fact, in Jesus' most recent interaction with the Pharisees back in Luke chapter 11, Jesus pronounced several woes on these self-righteous, self-declared guardians of the Jewish religion who were leading individuals astray. And in the wake of those words of condemnation from Jesus, we read in the final two verses of Luke chapter 11, when Jesus left there, The scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile to him and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. So the Pharisees, those who come to Jesus to tell him, look, you need to get out of here and get to safety, are those who are at this point actually resolved to do whatever is in their power to thwart the ministry of Jesus. Because he keeps confronting the hypocrisy of their outside-only religion and ruining their credibility and their popularity with the people. They can't stand to see that system broken down. 
And it appears as though the Pharisees have found an efficient way to steer Jesus away from their area. If only they can convince Jesus that he's in danger and that he needs to preserve his life, then they believe they'll rid themselves of Jesus. And his bold ministry, which was ultimately like flipping the scales, such that the last would be first and the first would be last, as we just saw a little earlier last week in Luke chapter 13, verse 30. But it's no stretch to imagine that Jesus would have called Herod the Tetrarch's attention. Nor is it a stretch to imagine that Herod would want to kill Jesus. Herod was, in fact, the ruler who had ordered the imprisonment and the execution of the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. That final Old Testament prophet who pointed others to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was ultimately arrested, jailed, and ordered to be executed because of this Herod. And indeed, one day soon, Jesus would stand before this same Herod as we find in Luke chapter 23, in the midst of his mockery of a trial for blasphemy that was carried out by the Jews. And while Jesus was eventually silent at his trial before the ruler who now threatens his life here in Luke chapter 13, that did not prevent Herod and his soldiers at the time of Jesus' trial from treating Jesus with contempt, from mocking him and dressing him in a royal robe, before sending him back, ultimately, to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. So Jesus' life probably was in real danger at this point, at least from an earthly sort of perspective. But Jesus had a mission to complete. He had a goal to reach. And no threat against him could thwart the steadfast love of the Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 32, Go and tell that fox, Herod, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Now the fox is a small, sneaky, but otherwise insignificant sort of animal that works in the darkness of the night. But Jesus makes it clear that he will pursue the will of his limitless Father, working during the day when it is light, as he himself is the light of the world. He speaks first about the miraculous ministry that he's carrying out by bringing spiritual healing as he casts out demons and by bringing physical healing as he performs cures. Those miracles are ultimately the platform of Jesus' ministry. He gained a hearing amongst his own people to whom he was sent by carrying out these miraculous deeds. But but friends, Jesus had something so much greater to do. He, He had a goal which was greater than these things. These miracles were the platform for his ministry, but they were not the purpose of Jesus' ministry. Let let me say it another way. Jesus didn't just come to perform miracles. Jesus came to save souls. And no earthly ruler could distract him from his goal, his mission, his purpose, what God had called him to do. Because the love that Jesus has for you is a steadfast love. No threat to his own safety would distract Jesus. No fox lurking in the darkness would prevent the light of the world from reaching his goal 
And what was that goal? Well, Jesus said, the third day I reach my goal. If you know much about the Bible, you'll recognize that phrase, the third day. Back in Luke chapter 9, for example, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. When God, through the Apostle Paul, summarized the gospel, when he summarized the good news that we find in Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, we read these words from Paul. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. On the third day. There's that phrase again. When we step into the waters of baptism here in a few moments, we're going to be portraying that same gospel. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day. Baptism is a, a visible portrait of what Jesus has done and how we are associating ourselves with him. And that ultimately, we, who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, have been made alive together with Christ. Saved by grace. Only as a matter of what he could do for us, not what we could do on our own. So baptism is this wonderful testimony to what Jesus accomplished on the third day as he arose conquering sin and death and the grave. And so what was Jesus' goal? It was to save. There is safety in the Savior's wings because his love for you is steadfast. No threat to his own safety would alter his course. With steadfast love and purpose, he marched on toward the cross, on toward the shame, on toward the mockery, on toward the grave, because his love is for you, and his love is for me, and his love would not be satisfied until his goal had been reached. So Christ put himself on the line with a steadfast love for you, and for me. And yes, the love that Jesus has for you is a steadfast love. That's the first characteristic of the love that Jesus offers you in the safety of his wings. Here's the second. The love that Jesus has for you is a sacrificial love. As Jesus pressed on toward his goal, he had no mistaken notions about what that goal which he was pressing on towards would require of him. Romans 8.32 reveals that God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And God didn't have to send his son kicking and screaming to the cross. For Ephesians 5.2 commands those who are God's children to walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And there is safety in the Savior's wings because he has come to be the sacrifice that was needed to appease the wrath of God against unrighteous sinners like you and me. It's not by personal deeds of righteousness that anyone is saved, but by God's grace offered to us as the sinless one has stood in our place 
He stood in the place of sinful humanity, like you and me, to bear the penalty that we rightfully deserved. As Jesus pressed on toward his goal, he knew that this road would lead to his own torture and his own execution. He knew that if he went on to Jerusalem, he would perish there. Nevertheless, he said in verse 33, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. And oh, how many prophets were executed within that holy city of Jerusalem by the people who it represented. Over and over again, God had sent his prophets to his chosen people to tell them about their sinful ways, to plead with them to repent. And yet, they had time and time again killed those prophets, martyred those who were sent by God with a message of God. It was true even of John the Baptist just a few months before what Jesus is saying here. But know this. Jesus loves you. He loves you with sacrificial love. He loves you with a love that caused him, the very Son of God, to humble himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He has given himself so that you can find life. He has borne the wrath so that you can receive grace. When you gather beneath the wings of our dear Savior, you find that he shields you from the curse of mankind by becoming a curse for you. And so I ask you, do you want to escape the wrath of God? Do you want your debt of sin canceled? Do you want the curtain of separation between you and God to be torn down? Then come to Jesus. Come and find rest in the safety of his wings. Come and be shielded by his sacrificial love. Come to Jesus and find eternal life. You see, Jesus was not motivated in his journey by the peril of a wicked king. He was motivated by the plan of his father. And you know there's a word for the church here? Because Jesus ultimately knew the safest place for him to be was in the midst of his father's will. You know, there are a lot of things that God calls us as members of his church to do. There are a lot of avenues where he calls us to step out by faith and to to reach into the darkness and bring the light to bear upon this world that we live in. And when you strive to do that, I can guarantee you that there will be foxes like Herod. There will be Pharisees. There will be those who try to distract you from your work. There will be those who try to get in the way. There will be those who persecute you. There will be those who speak against you and strive to draw you away from your task. But listen to me, friends. The safest place for you to be is in the center of God's will. There was no safer place for the Savior to be than in the midst of the mission which the Father had commissioned him to carry out. And there is no safer place for the church to be than living out the great commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he's commanded them. Why? Because he is with us to the very end 
of the age. And his timing is perfect. His protection is over us. We can rest in the sheltering wings of our Savior because he's alive and well. And his plans are good plans. Yes, the love that Jesus has for you is a sacrificial love. That's the second characteristic of the love that Jesus offers you in the safety of his wings. Here's the third. The love that Jesus has for you is a sorrowful love. What do you mean by that? Well, as Jesus turns his thoughts to the city where he will be sacrificed, he issues a lamentful woe. A a, a lamentful statement of sorrowful love. With a great emotion, he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You can hear the emotion in, in the words that Jesus is speaking. He calls out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's expressing his broken heart a sorrowful love for the city that has rejected him over and over and over again. And while he uses the name of the city of God, he's ultimately speaking to the obstinate heart of the entire Jewish nation who calls this city their own capital who caused this the place where they gather to worship in their temple. Because the majority of those people had refused to receive Jesus, even as he was there performing miracles in their midst. Even as the voice of heaven came down and said, This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. Even in the midst of all that was going on as the demons were being driven out, as Satan himself was was being shown to be powerless in the midst of this one, even in those circumstances. The so-called chosen people of God were rejecting the chosen Savior of God. The majority of them refused him as God recorded through The Apostle John in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And of this people, and of this city, Jesus cries out with a broken heart against their history, of killing prophets and stoning those who've been sent to her. Soon they will kill the greatest prophet who's ever lived, the prophet who was promised. When God said, I will send you a prophet like Moses, you shall listen to him in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Their promised great prophet, their Messiah had come, and soon they would kill him. Soon thereafter, they would execute individuals in the church with Stephen becoming the first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 7. And the justice of God demands condemnation upon obstinate people. But the heart of God desires restoration. What a sorrowful love is on display in these words of Christ. He says, how often I wanted to gather you together. He often wanted to gather the children of his people together. But they would not have it, according to the Lord, at the end of verse 34. How often did Jesus want to gather his people together, we might ask? 
How often did he want them to be restored to their creator and to the one who had set them apart and provided them innumerable blessings? Well, Jesus has always wanted to gather Israel together. The answer to the question of how often did he want to do so can be answered with the word always. You see, the Lord is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance as he revealed to us in 2 Peter 3.9. But the heartbreaking truth is that Israel would not. You see, God offers life, but he will not force that life upon any of us. He gives to men and women a free will that works in concert with his sovereign plan to elect to salvation those who have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And Jesus is at the center of that plan. Jesus is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. He is the narrow door. If you want life, you must come through him. But Israel would not. My question today, though, for you is this. Would you? Jesus wants to gather you together with the redeemed of all the ages into his eternal kingdom. Will you have it? Or will you reject him? Will you place your faith in Jesus? Will you entrust your life to him as Lord? Or will you break his heart like the nation of Israel yet another time? By your rejection, by your unwillingness to yield your life to Him? Will you go through another Sunday, another sermon, another gathering, another hearing of the gospel, and still refuse to yield your life to Him? If so, you might as well take your name and put it right there in the place of Jerusalem in these words of sorrow from Jesus as He cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I've wanted to gather your children together, but you would not have it. They would not. By the ordering of these words in the original Greek, that phrase takes the emphasis of Jesus' statement in the Greek text. They absolutely refuse to be gathered to the Lord. Their stubbornness caused them to reject the Savior. Have any of you ever been rejected? You know, maybe like in a relationship or, or maybe... You had some sort of situation where uh, someone abandoned you in some sort of way, or, or maybe it's just a matter of individuals ignoring you when you had something that you wanted to say. There's all sorts of ways in which we might experience rejection by others. And rejection can be a real painful sort of experience. If you've experienced that pain, I call upon you just to think through, remember that pain, because that's how Jesus feels when you reject him. Many a parent knows what this rejection feels like. Their children complain about their efforts to steer their lives in the right direction. Those same children feel like their parents are being restrictive when the reality is those parents are trying to exercise the deepest sort of love by guiding their children around severe dangers in life. Many moms and dads have spent days and weeks and years in anguish, weeping, over the poor choices that their children have made. You can hear them pleading as they find the little baggies of drugs or the empty bottles of booze. You can hear them pleading as the STD results come back. 
You can hear them pleading over the funeral home. My son, why did you not listen to me? My daughter, why did you spurn my words of instruction? Why didn't you steer clear of these dangers? This is the passion that we see in Jesus as he looks out over the city of Jerusalem. And it's the sorrowful passion that he has for you. If you now, once more, reject his invitation to find safety in the shelter of his wings. Oh, the love that Jesus has for you is a sorrowful love. That's the third characteristic of the love that Jesus offers you in the safety of his wings. Here's the fourth. The love that Jesus has for you is a sheltering love. In verse 34, Jesus uses such a powerful word picture. It's a picture that I added to the title of today's message, and you probably saw it earlier. Jesus says that he wanted to gather the children of Jerusalem together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings in that verse. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm. I know a lot of you did. But I did spend some time on the internet this past week, all right? And I spent a little time searching for videos of mother hens with their baby chicks. And I saw a few videos of mother hens attacking animals which were larger than them, such as cats or dogs or even a goat in one instance. I saw a mother hen attacking because she felt that her little chicks were being threatened. I also saw how a mama hen will squat down and open up her wings and those little chicks just come crawling under those wings looking for shelter. And do you know when a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings? She does that when she senses that a danger is coming. If there's a storm on the horizon, the mother hen lets Those wings loose and those little chicks just come crawling in. She shelters them from the storm. All the while, you know who's taking the brunt of the wind and the rain and the sleet and the hail? It's that mama hen. Her chicks don't experience the danger because their mama is sheltering them from it under the safety of her wings. And friends, there's a great truth about what Christ does for those who are his own in this analogy that Jesus gives us about himself. If you are in Christ, if you have entrusted your life and your future and your hope to him, you're as safe as you'll ever be. Though mistakes and bad decisions can cause you heartache, you are eternally safe. You're sheltered from the worst perils that could ever come upon you. Though a heart attack or a murderer may take your life, if you are in Christ by faith, then the Lord has granted to you something greater than what you would have if those had not happened because he has granted to you eternal life. In John 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Friends, if you placed your faith in Jesus and you were under the care of his sheltering love, nothing can separate you from his love. 
And if you are in Christ, you are eternally secure in Him. No one will pluck you out of the Savior's sheltering hand of love. And the love that Jesus has for you is a sheltering love. That's the fourth characteristic of love that Jesus offers you in the safety of His wings. Here's the fifth and final one. The love that Jesus has for you is a second chance love. Now, those who reject God's compassion ultimately deserve God's condemnation. Apparently, the Jews weren't expecting that, though. Truth be told, I think a lot of individuals don't expect that God will meet their rejection with condemnation. But this truth remains. Jesus has been preaching on it again and again as we've gone through his message in the chapters 12 and 13 of Luke's gospel. And yet the Jews thought to themselves, we're safe. We're the chosen people of God. And indeed they were. God sent his son through their ancestry and into their nation. As Paul writes in Romans 3, the Jew has a great advantage in every respect. Because they've been entrusted with the oracles of God. And yet their refusal to believe in these oracles does not nullify God's faithfulness, Paul says. And so Jesus says, behold. And the word that's translated behold here in Luke chapter 13 is a particle that's meant to arrest the attention. It's a statement that indicates that the words that follow will be shocking and surprising. And Jesus says, behold, your house is left to you desolate or as the esv translate this this phrase your house is forsaken god is saying that now since the jews since the people who find their capital city in jerusalem since they've rejected their messiah he will give them over to the desires of their hearts they will not want the plan of god they have shown that's not their desire to experience his Messiah and his plan. And so they will not, for a time, enjoy the blessings of God's protection. He is, for a time, removing his favor from them in order that he might cause them to be jealous of him and to return to him. And so he says, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is forsaken. Now, what's the house that Jesus refers to? Is it the temple in Jerusalem, the house of God, as they would call it? Is it the city that houses that temple? Is it the nation that ultimately houses that city? Well, history makes it clear that it has been all of the above. Because all of those, the temple and the city and the nation, experienced the same fate The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and burned the temple. And judgment began then, but it's continued through a trail of anti-Semitism that has chased Jews down through the centuries, permeating every country, leaving a trail of tears and tragedy for the people of Israel. That trail found its horrific climax in the Nazi Holocaust through which Hitler's Nazi Germany and its World War II allies killed some 6 million European Jews, including 1.5 million children. At the end of that war, about two-thirds of the Jews in continental Europe had been eradicated through ethnic cleansing. And this was shocking to the rest of the world. 
Why? Not because men were willing to persecute others in such a way, because that's happened with other people at other times. But because of the group that faced that persecution, the shock comes from the fact that these are the supposed people of God. But friends, that's what it looks like when God leaves a house desolate. And God will not force an obstinate people to receive his will, but he will remove his hand of blessing. But praise God, that's not the final word. Because there's a final verse of Luke chapter 13 that shines forth a ray of hope. It's the word until that makes the difference. Jesus says, I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a ray of hope. That's a promise that there will be a coming time when Israel will recognize her Messiah. There will be a time when Christ comes again to establish his millennial kingdom, when the Jews will recognize the one whom they have pierced is in fact the Savior of the world, their appointed Messiah. And that's a ray of hope because there is a future for Israel. The time will come when their Messiah will return. He will be recognized. He will be received And Israel's house will not be left desolate forever. Even though that nation now has no king or priest, no temple or sacrifice, God has not forgotten his people. The nature, this nation has God's promise that she has not been forsaken. And friends, that's a good reminder for each and every one of us. Because it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, what the characteristics of your life have been to this point in your life's history. Because our God is a God of second chances. Our God is a God who extends grace beyond measure. Our God is a God who forgives 70 times 7 times and even more. Our God is the one who welcomes his prodigal into his home. It goes running to meet him with the the royal ring and the robe and the fatted calf. Friends, our God is the God of the second chance. And I don't care what your experience has been in life to this point. I don't care how bad you feel like you failed him. I don't care how many times you've set yourself in opposition to his will. There is still hope for you. Because our God offers to you his grace and his mercy so rich and so sweet. That's why this Jesus came. That's the message that God was sending through this Messiah. The message is that those who call upon him as Lord, those who say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, those who confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, will be saved. Not by the deeds of righteousness which you have done, not by your good track record, not by the history of righteousness that you built up, but by what Jesus has done. Jesus has won that victory, my friends. So I encourage you, trust in him. Let him be your hope. We're going to enjoy the opportunity to see the, the visible testimony of individuals who've done this very thing as we go down 
to the river here in just a few moments. But I wonder, where is the status of your heart? Where is your standing before the Lord? If God were to call you home today, are you prepared to be in His presence? Is He the Lord over your life? If not, then I I would encourage you seek out the God of second chances. His grace is so rich. His mercy is so sweet. The life he offers you is untouchable. Come and rest under the shelter of the Savior's wings. Would you pray with me? God, how can we respond in light of a Savior who's been so rich and sweet toward us? God, what what less can we give as an offering than our very selves? And yet, God, I feel sure there are multiple individuals who would gather in this place, maybe week in, week out, maybe it's the first time they're here, God. You know, hearts. Can't help but imagine that there are multiple individuals who would be here on a week in, week out sort of basis, spurning your truth. When you cry out, oh, my child, oh, my child, come and rest under the shelter of my wings. And yet they would not. Father, if there are those who are in this status here on this day, then, Father, I pray you'd impress them by the power of your Spirit to know that Jesus has come. His wings are open. (coughs) Shelter has been provided. (coughs) And I pray, Father, that every heart would leave here clear as every individual would deal with the lordship of Jesus by yielding his or her life to you. God, call unto yourself those who are your own here and now, I pray, as only you can do. Father, if there are individuals who need to make that decision today, who have made that decision today, it's just simply a matter of trust, Lord. If there are those who would place their trust in you, who would call upon you as Lord of their lives, who would yield themselves to you, then, Father, I pray you would help them not to keep that a secret, but to make that known. We go now to celebrate baptism. We go now to celebrate a visible display, a a visible proclamation of what Jesus has done. Father, if there are those who need to respond in this way, who have responded in this way, but who have not made that public, then, Father, I pray you give them the courage to to reach out to the church office, to, to reach out to me as a pastor, to find someone in this flock and let them know so that we might celebrate together the good gifts which you've granted to us, that we might endeavor together to be your church on mission, doing your work. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.